One, two. All right, if everybody, oh, I'm yelling now. If everybody will come in and find your way to a seat, the closer to the front, the better. I know we're Baptists and that was a foreign language to you, but uh, it will be beneficial to me and to you if you'll come move down closer to the front, if you would. Uh, I don't spit too awful badly as I talk, but I won't promise anything. So uh, if anybody toward the back will call the people in from the atrium to uh, come in and let's get started. I want to be mindful of our time and, and uh, respectful of yours. So we do want to get started at six every Sunday, if at all possible. Boy, you got quiet in a hurry too. Uh, first of all, let me thank you for being here. What a, what a great crowd. I mean, I, I, that thrills my soul. Uh, you don't understand it. And my hope is that this group from tonight will speak into the rest of your circle of influence and grow each Sunday night because I think what we're going to discuss will be certainly worthwhile or we wouldn't be doing it. So please, please speak into your circle of influence, your connect group, whatever that circle of friends is you have. And this, this is primarily for the body called Wallace, but it's really for anybody who wants to come and see what uh, God is doing here. And so we would invite visitors in and, and people searching for a home, the unchurched, this, this discussion can be for all of the above. So invite coworkers, invite family, invite friends. I, that would be incredible. Uh, so let me open in a word of prayer, and then I'm going to call Jeff Archer up to give us some communication updates. So pray with me if you would. God, what an incredible day. Um, the message this morning from Stephen uh, could not have been delivered with any more passion, clarity, intention, and Holy Spirit love. So thank you for him speaking through him, gifting him in the way you have, and use him, continue to use him in our church for as long as you desire. And God, thank you for for all that was offered and all that was received this morning through the word. And and for the incredible time of worship we had with, with Jake and the choir and the orchestra, Terry. Lord, just a great day. If We left here encouraged greatly this morning. So tonight as we come together, God, we pray your presence be so thick in here and that we would be so aware of the Spirit's uh, dwelling with us that we would be overwhelmed and that even in the midst of home folk discussion god that that the holy spirit would be free to move and and would change hearts and lives god we even pray for salvation tonight for those who might not know christ jesus as their savior i pray that as we discuss the gospel that the holy spirit would convict hearts and if there's one here that has any doubt whatsoever about their eternal destiny that tonight would be their day of salvation and so lord we we give you praise and we come to you with great expectation of you moving tonight and changing us and lord we love you and thank you and ask that you would be honored and glorified by our obedience tonight and that we would make you smile before we leave in christ's name amen Jeff, would you come? There's a microphone right there. I asked Jeff to come and, and in the interest of continuing communication, bring you up to date on 
where we've been through the summer and where we're at now with all of our processes and, and for the interim and the pastoral search and the deacon uh, ministry and everything. So, Jeff, uh, tell us where we're at. Um, I think I said this morning that I've prayed more this summer um, than I've prayed any summer of my whole life, I think. Um, because we did definitely not see this coming. Um, and when Bobby Marshman called me, I don't remember when, two years ago almost, and said, hey, I want you to be my uh, the chair-elect for the deacons. And I said, yes. I just did not know what was going to happen. Um, <clears throat> you ever been in that situation? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And when I called Adam last November and said, hey, madam, God's laid you on my heart. And I really didn't know Adam that well. And I knew uh, he had a great reputation, a great heart for God. And and uh, he said yes. And, you know, looks like it might take longer than 30 December or 31 December there, Adam. Um, so it'll be on his watch. Um, the deacons... Um, we have a we formed a committee for the interim pastor, and uh, we discussed today um, some of the different models of interim and what this church needs uh, and where we think God is leading. Um, so I just wanted to give you a quick update because we have had a lot of questions about interim, and uh, so I want to let you know where we are. Uh, we have um, talked about the models and everything, and we've talked through some people, uh, some names that we've had thrown out to us. And um, it seems like almost every name that we've had, somebody in the in the committee um, knew something about that person. Um, so where we are is we've culled it down to about three or four potentials. Um, and we want to uh, spend the, the next two or three weeks uh, gathering more information uh, on those potentials and then uh, and getting back together, staying in touch uh, as a committee over email, and then getting back together and going from there uh, to pray and and see where God leads. So that's where we are right now. Um, we are in the process of gathering more information about those three or four potentials. And then um, after we gather that information and spend a lot more time in prayer, which we hope you all will be joining us in uh, every day, uh, is praying for that process, um, then we will probably make some contacts after that and uh, see what availability there is. Um, Ed Shoemaker said tonight that um, what we want for this church, both in the interim and in the senior pastor, is we want God's man in God's time. And that's what we want. Period. Uh, and whatever time that takes um, is on God because that's what we're truly seeking. Uh, so if we have our 
our hearts and our ears open to him and his leading, then, uh, then we'll be right there. And when God brings it through fruition, um, that's what we'll have. So that, I mean, it's like Ed said, you know, that man is already out there. Uh, and he may, he may actually um, be doing something totally different. And he doesn't even know that God is fixing to tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, I want you to be the interim at Wallace, or I want you to be the senior pastor at Wallace. He doesn't know. And how many times are we like that throughout life? You know, we're running the race or whatever. We don't know that God is fixing to change our life dramatically in ways that we can't understand, but that God knows. So as long as we're trusting God, provide the right man, the right time, we'll be in good shape. Continue to pray. Uh, that's all that we can ask. And, uh, and that's all that we should ask. I mean, what else do we need to do? Right? The Bible says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, pray. So that's, that's where we are. I appreciate your time, and, and Daryl, give me a few minutes to bring you up to date. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate you very, very much. I've never been associated with a finer group of of men than our deacon body here at Wallace. I, I know you know that, but I I want to say that publicly because the the passion and the, the concern and care for for you as their church exceeds any I've ever seen. And you can you can rest well knowing that these guys are your deacons and your servant body here at Wallace because they're doing an incredible job and and seeking the Lord in every last discussion and decision. So if I don't fall off the stool, we'd be all right. Uh, it's good to, again. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see everybody. And, and we've got our, our Cumberland campus here sitting in your right zip code. I see that you, you've got them all together. So I'm glad you guys are here and and uh, we, we're a segregated campus. We have them sitting here and everybody sitting over here, but uh, we're, we're glad you're here. And uh, tonight I want to talk about this crazy word, expectations. As we were discussing uh, as a staff, uh, gosh, I don't know how long ago now, how do we communicate vision, direction, mission, moving forward, especially in this transitional time, which is really, really critical uh, for our church. And uh, Jared or somebody, uh, this word came up, and it's a marriage of two words, next, what's next, and expectations. So we, it came out in expectations, and so Jared branded it, and so I think it's a really, really good word to explain this series. What, what? Can you expect, what can we expect as a church body in order to be positioned where we need to be for future ministry and kingdom growth five years, 10 years, 20 years from now? What do we need to look like as a church in order to be positioned to do God's work in today's cultural environment and today's church and spiritual environment and so that's what these next six weeks are going to be about and tonight i'm going to give you sort of an overview of six expect expectations and i'm going to camp out on the first one tonight and we'll cover each of them sequentially and this is kind of a living thing so it may change throughout these six weeks as as the lord speaks through you and 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 in our 
prayerful consideration and process and discussion as a church we may adjust it a little bit but right now i've got six next expectations sort of divided up three and three and we'll look at that in just a second of what can we expect from you as church from us as staff and as a body collectively what can we expect to how can we expect to position ourselves in order to be effective for the kingdom work in the days to come so that's sort of the gist of this a lot of it is going to be hopefully all of it will be very challenging because one thing i remember many quotes probably more so than any other study i've done from experiencing god with henry blackaby but one of the things i remember very well is his quote of you can't stay where you are and follow god because god is always on his task and if at any time we settle in and stop chasing after what god is doing then he don't wait on us he is on a dead run to the end of time he has the salvation of the world in mind and if we don't continually chase after god in ministry and for a great commission and great commandment cause then we'll be sitting around here playing church when god is playing salvation with the church who's willing to change and move forward So you can't stay where you are and follow God. We need to burn that into our soul because the moment we become apathetic or complacent and we are all wired from a fleshly standpoint to do that, we seek our comfort zone. We we get into, we wear a rut out and we settle into it and it takes more effort to push you out of the rut than it does on running ground. And so sort of over these next six weeks, I want to shove us out of our ruts and fill the ruts in behind us because we can't afford to have ruts in a Great Commission church. We can't afford to be static in any way. We have to be fluid and constantly about the gospel's work. So that's what these next six weeks are about. And I'm going to hit a lot of things as we go through and I want to remind you, as as Dale has and others have throughout the last several weeks, this is not going to be open mic during any week. We may take some discussion forum time toward the end, but it's open question every night from the standpoint that transition at WMBC.net is an email address that you can submit a question to 24 hours a day. We won't read it 24 hours a day, but we'll get to it the next day. But transition at WMBC.net, you can submit questions, concerns, however you want to, whatever you would like to express to us as a staff and a leadership body, you can do that through transition at WMBC.net. You can also fill out a note card and drop it in the expectation box out at the Welcome Center. It looks just like that logo. What, what color is it? Y'all put that together. It's red, so it, so it should be real easy to see. But it's got that logo on it, and that's where you can drop your, drop your questions, your comments, your concerns, whatever they are. Uh, you can do it anonymously, or you can sign it. It makes no difference to me, but if you want a response personally, then sign it. And uh, we, will, we will engage you and, and discuss it with you. And, and, uh, but if, if, if it's just an anonymous question or concern or comment, then what we're going to do, we're going to collect them and sort of combine them if they're common and we'll we'll pick the ones that are most common first to address because we feel like that's 
got the most interest from from our congregation we'll try to address those as most important but we'll try to get to all of them in one way or another is that fair so we want you to know that you have an opportunity to to uh interact with us during these six weeks and and at some point during the six weeks depending on how everything comes together and the topics that come up we may pull some of the leadership up and just kind of do a a uh, table form and let have some mics out in the audience and let you throw questions at us and and have some of the deacon leadership and lay leadership and pastoral leadership up here to answer some questions so we want to let this flow as we go along and make it as beneficial as we can for the church as a whole that makes sense but tonight I want to just kind of introduce um, the six expectations and then we'll talk about the gospel primarily tonight and I hope you brought something to take notes with and, and write some things down uh, if not I can make these slides certainly available to you uh, just email me or email transition at wmbc.net so you don't have to remember another email and we'll give you any of this information you want if you want to communicate it in, in another form. So what's the definition of an expectation? I've already kind of gone over it. It's an expectation of what's next. What can you expect from your church and what does your expect, church expect from you? I think if we're not clear on our expectations and we don't have clarity about our mission and vision, we don't have alignment around that mission and vision, then we're all going to be going in different directions and we won't accomplish much anywhere. And the real key is we need buy-in and ownership to all of these mission and vision values because the more buy-in we have from you, the congregation, the more ownership you take in it and the farther and quicker we're able to push things. Johnny Hunt said for the last 30 years that I've listened to him preach, if the only thing push, moving in this church is what I'm pushing, we're not going very far. But if we got a thousand people pushing the gospel, we're going to get some things done. And we're going to be able to absolutely see the world turn upside down. And that's, that's our hope and our goal. So an expectation of what's next. So what's an expectation? I'm just going to go through these six. Number one, tonight we'll talk about a clarity of the gospel. We want to define the gospel clearly, succinctly, functionally. We want to make sure that we all walk away from here knowing what the gospel is. Because if we do not get this right, nothing else matters. We can, we can espouse all the, the doctrine we want to. We can talk about all the programming we want to. But if this piece is not clear in its completeness, then we will never become the kingdom church that we need to become. So we're going to talk about clarity of the gospel. The second expectation is discipleship is not optional. Discipleship is not optional. Next week, we're going to talk about, we're going to continue a discussion about the gospel by talking about the, God, the discipleship element of it. I'm involved with a, with a, a peer group right now that's uh, beginning a ministry that's going to become regional next year and, and possibly spread out from that in, in the out years. But the premise of the ministry is starts with a call. If you are called to salvation, you are called to discipleship. No excuses. The New Testament knows of no gospel void of discipleship. It does not exist. When Jesus says, come follow me, he first said, come see, come follow me, and then come abide in me. 
There was a progression of familiarization and then a solidification of commitment and then an absolute surrender of a life. That was the gospel of Christ. And so tonight we're going to talk about the fallacies that we've allowed to creep into the church concerning that. So number one is clarity of the gospel. Number two is discipleship is not optional. Number three is whatever it takes. Attitude is everything. Attitude to a large degree will determine our success and failure as a church. Second only to submission to God and the Holy Spirit and his movement in the church. But our attitudes as people in the flesh can thwart all of that. And if you've been around church very long, you'll know that. So attitude is everything. So ours must be, as Stephen shared with Paul this morning, I've become all things to all people that I might save some. That was a whatever it takes attitude. That was a surrender of my life for the sake of another. It was an understanding of we are a rescue station and any other purpose is a dilution of our purpose. So we must adopt a whatever it takes attitude from a gospel standpoint for the kingdom's sake and for God's glory. Nothing, any, any retreat from that every step away from a whatever it takes attitude makes us more and more ineffective in the kingdom and our world's going to hell and needs Christ and they're desperate for us to love them enough to tell them we got to be willing to do whatever it takes and we'll talk a lot about that in week three that's the end of the first half after the first three next expectations Clarity of the gospel, discipleship is not optional, and whatever it takes, attitudes, everything. The first three weeks, we'll have a Labor Day break, no activities on Labor Day. Then we'll go to an expectation number four. Live an other-centered life. That means forsaking self for the sake of others. That means every direction of ministry, every direction of our witness, every testimony of our life becomes for the sake of those who don't know Christ yet. And the more we turn outward, the less nyan-nyan we have inwardly about preferences and hot and cold and color and stylistically and music this and music that. We, we, we have to become so outwardly focused that there's no time for that. Those are distractions that Satan loves to see happen in the church. And people's eternity are, is way too important to let those kind of things creep into our fellowship. And that's going to be a self-policing thing that, that we're going to all hold each other accountable to doing. And every conversation needs to turn very quickly from an inward conversation to an outward conversation in every circle of, of talk. Because it's not about us, it's about the ones who aren't here yet. It's about becoming an outwardly focused church. That's what the whole next nine weeks of Sunday morning is about. Nine traits of an outwardly focused church. We must live an others-centered life. Selfishness and selflessness cannot coexist. To the extreme we are selfish, selfless will not take place. To the extent we are selfless, selfish will starve and cease to exist we have to be in others live in others centered 
life. Number five, we got to turn the church inside out. This is a, this is a continuation of becoming an others focused person. When we do this corporately, when we begin to focus outwardly, selflessly instead of selfishly, we become, we start to turn the church inside out. In other words, we start to have discussions within our ministry base, within our budgeting process, within all of our calendaring. We start to think about community. Chad, Chad shared this with his leadership this morning. We start to, to start to focus our church calendaring process beginning with community events and how we can be an influence in what's already gone in the community rather than creating a bunch of church events that we hope people come to. Does that make any sense to anybody? The world is going about their their deal and they're having celebration after celebration. They're having event after event on Market Square. We, Robert and I was just talking to a gentleman here after church today and right across the street from where we just moved is a big open field and he said they have Mule Day. Anybody been to Mule Day? Me either, but we're going. I'll be the biggest mule there probably. But it's that kind of thing. How... How much are we availing ourselves to the events in the community and trying to think with, a, with an outwardly centered mindset of how can we get the gospel influence into their events? I've got a friend that just planted a church in Colorado Springs and they've been in a pre-launch stage for about a year now, but it really accelerated because he did this. In the mall, at outside the mall in Colorado Springs, all they did was, was build this really cool-looking fall backdrop around Halloween. And they show up and talk to the mall management and, and said, we want to just take people's picture. This is a backdrop. It's a photo opportunity. We just want to take people's picture and, and give it to them. And, of course, the mall's first question is, what's in it for you? And he said, Nothing. Really, he said, we would like to put our church name on the booth somewhere, but we're okay if, and they said, no, we can't do that. He said, we're okay with that. We just want a presence in the community. We want to build opportunities where they're already at in order to speak into their life and build relationships with them. The response was phenomenal. Their launch was accelerated by about six to eight months. They started, a school got dropped in their lap that they expected to take about two years process contractually to get a hold of. It took them about six weeks and they end up launching the first week with about 80 people. They've never been to Colorado Springs until they moved there recently. But because of a photo booth at a mall and because of going to a Wild Wings Cafe and having, I know this will make some of you uncomfortable, Wild Wings Cafe and having bachelor watch nights and bachelorette watch nights and American Idol watch nights. You know why? That's what people do in the community. So we can either sit and point our finger and judge them or we can go create opportunities to interact with them. So what they do? Wild Wing Cafe, American Idol watch night. Started with 60 to 80 people in their launch. Within just a month's period of time, they had 150 coming for worship nine-tenths of them are completely unchurched. He said, Daryl, he said, it's fun, but it's really messy. 
He said, we, we had, they're in an Air Force town, of course, Colorado Springs. And he said, we had a young lady whose husband's deployed and she got involved in our children's ministry. And we were doing all kinds of activities with kids and had to bounce house and everything going. And all of a sudden he heard her yell an expletive across the room. And he said, I'm the only one that absolutely froze. Nobody else even paid it a mind at all. It didn't even send a flare up. He said, once I got through having a heart attack, I realized I'm the only one reacted that way. And we just went back to loving on people. He said, it's messy, but it's real fun. You got to live where the people live and take the gospel where they exist. That's about turning the church inside out. We have to plan our activities in the community where they live because they're not coming to our churchy things. So we need to reevaluate all those things. Market Square is an absolute gold mine of connection and relationships. Absolute gold mine, especially around the cold winter months when the ice skating rink's up there. We took, we took our budget several years ago for our Christmas pageantry and we rented the ice skating rink at Market Square. All the money we would put in the pageant, we rented Market Square. We, we did hot chocolate, we did cotton candy, we did popcorn, and we let everybody skate free. It was incredible. We had uh, a band in, we had the Liberty Stomp team in, we did all the entertainment thing, we had our choir sing on the bandstand there at Market Square. At first, everybody was skeptical and the vendors were mad because we were giving away free stuff because they were trying to sell food and we were giving it away. The very first night, this was a weekend long thing, every vendor in Market Square sold out of everything they had. They were asking when we were coming back. And all we did was love on people with a cup of hot chocolate, some cotton candy. I had cotton candy in my ears and my nose all over the place. If you've ever done that, you know what I mean. It's, it's really incredible. I love cotton candy. But we have opportunities. But we don't think that way because we think inwardly. We don't think outwardly. We have to turn the church inside out. We have to open our doors and move into the community where the gospel is desperately needed. We have it in the church. The days of opening the doors, ringing the dinner bell and saying, y'all come, I don't know if you figured it out yet. It's not happening. That's not the culture we live in. If we have that kind of mindset, all we're going to do is swap fish from one aquarium to the other. And our processes are and will be built around just expecting other church folks to come when they get upset with where they're at. That's not great commission gospel centered church. Just not. But being outwardly focused planning our world around the community's world in order to interact with them i mean think about it biblically what did jesus say jesus said go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in he didn't say go sit where you're at in the synagogue and compel them hope they come he said go and as you go make disciples baptize them in the name of the father son and holy spirit and teach them everything i commanded you to do pour into their life you can't do that if they're not coming and they're not coming unless we go get them we have to have an attitude of turning the church inside out we have to start thinking that way and that's i'm not just talking about church and programming and staff i'm talking about every mind and creative thing in this room thinking that way we have a collective creativity here and i'm not a creative guy except for what 
my creative God gives me on occasion, but we have a collective creative mind here that can think of things that I've not even begun to fathom yet. And we need every one of these exponentially thinking creatively about how we can reach our community by being involved in where they're at, when they're doing it, for the sake of the gospel. Make sense? I'm, I'm telling you, this may scare you to death right now, but it's going to get so stinking exciting. You're going to come to church every Sunday wondering what's going to happen next. And I'm telling you, my next expectation is Pentecost. Why would we expect anything less than what God intended for the church to begin with when thousands were being saved? It was when they were in the town square proclaiming the gospel with power and with expectations of God moving without hindrance, without fear. We have to expect God to do great things. And when we're obedient to that mission and that call, I think you're going to see the front doors of this church open wide and God pouring people in here like crazy to be a part of what's going on. Think about it. You wonder, why aren't people coming now? And Dale said it not too long ago. He said, we like what we do. We like our church. And we don't wonder why people don't like it with us. Why don't they like what we do and how we do it? Well, because they're not us and because they haven't been here for 40 years. So we got to start thinking differently. We have to start being different people. We have to start thinking outwardly, turning the church inside out. Don't you want to see this building running over? Don't you want to see 1,700 seats filled up four times? If you don't, then I'm going to pray that God just breaks your heart because this town has too few seats in its churches for the lost people that we have any given Sunday by an exponential amount. And we should weep over our Jerusalem. It should break our heart for the people who aren't here because we all have family, friends, and coworkers who need Christ desperately and we sit around wondering why they're not coming. I invited them to church. I've invited them 23 times. How's that working for you? I'm not saying quit inviting. Please don't quit inviting. Invite, invite, invite. I'm just saying invitations are carried on a platter of love and compassion when you get involved in their life where they are in their circumstance. They're not coming to where we are because we've been compelled to go. Jesus had parable after parable concerning the invite to the table. He said, don't invite those people who can pay you back. Invite those people who can't pay you back and let them come into the table. We have to start thinking that way. We have a ministry in in Honduras called La Mesa that, that is a mission organization that we're involved in that our young adults and our students went to this year. And we were both involved in La Mesa on a Tuesday night. It's the most fascinating and amazing thing you've ever seen because all we do is invite people in and give them value, street people prostitutes, transvestite prostitutes, street people from the park, affluent people with Tommy Hilfiger shirts on. The invite's open to anybody. And we we give them value. We call them by name. We sit them down at a linen table in an open, hollowed out warehouse. And we talk to them and love them and give them value for an hour and feed them a hot meal. And we're, we're pouring into their life. There's 150 seats at the table. 
and we hand out 150 tickets because that's all there's room for. And they've learned to get there early because 150 goes quickly. And they're already seeing people saved left and right. About a six foot five transvestite prostitute, like the second month of La Mesa, came to one of the workers once they built some trust, weeping, saying, I want out, I just don't know how. That's what you see God doing when you turn the church inside out and you get into the community. So pray that we will be brave enough, bold enough, and obedient enough to turn the church inside out. That's an expectation number five. And lastly, unless you want to go longer, turn the world upside down. That'll only happen if number five happens. Turn the church inside out in order to turn the world upside down. What did they say about the apostles? They said, that few men turned the world upside down. What can a church of 800 to 1,000 do if they're fully committed to God and the great commission, the great commandment, and turn the church inside out? I guarantee you it will turn Knoxville upside down and very quickly spread to the rest of the world. Those are the six expectations. And we're going to talk about them in depth, starting with number one. Clarity of the gospel. You did say this was a three-hour thing, didn't you, Dale? Clarity of the gospel. John 10.10. I'm going to read through some verses real quick. I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. But everything that was gained to me, Paul's talking to the church at Philippi, that everything that was gained to me, I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That puts our preferences in perspective. Everything that I hold dear is a loss in light of everything Christ is in my life. Everything should be put behind in order to follow him. Everything. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. It doesn't matter how messy ministry gets, how hurtful it becomes when we're rejected, how persecuted we are in the marketplace. None of that compares to the glory that is going to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. It's all going to be worth it. We got to be willing to say whatever it takes. Endure hardship, endure persecution. And we can't, listen, we talk about persecution. We can't spell it in America. We can't spell persecution in America compared to other parts of the world. Other parts of the world, when we tell them what we feel persecuted about, they laugh at the conversation. Because they're tearing pages out of one Bible and sharing it in the middle of the night in a dark room, hoping somebody don't come in and jail them because of what they're doing. We feel persecuted if somebody says we can't read the Bible at work. That's not persecution. It's ignorance, first of all, but it's just, that's just a pushback. We have more rights than we'll ever claim in the workplace. We just want to whine and, and gripe about the ones that we're outwardly told we don't have. You have all kind of rights in the workplace to invite people to work, to invite people to lunch, to invite people to coffee, to meet before work and after work, to share the gospel, to go into their life and go watch their kids play ball, to go into their life and watch them and their 
recreation activities. You have all kinds of rights to speak into their life. Don't complain about the one or two that you don't have and use that as an excuse not to impact them. That's churchianity. That's not Christianity. Ephesians 1 and 2, and I won't read the whole thing, but I would challenge you to read it tonight. Because when Paul starts speaking into the church at Ephesus and starts talking about the benefits of knowing Christ Jesus as our Savior and what God did for us through the purchase of our our soul through the blood of his son, when Paul starts laying out these ever-increasing benefits of knowing Christ Jesus, it ought to set your soul on fire. And when we had the young adult retreat, I think it was back in February, if I remember right, we, I, I just started reading through that. And everything that, that got to a place where God had given us more through Christ Jesus, I just yelled more. Because it, the first two chapters of Ephesians are just chocked full of the more that God gave us through Christ Jesus completely by his mercy and grace. Completely. And we know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and, and we are saved by grace through faith. And, and we, we understand that, but we don't, we don't really internalize that. And then don't, don't just camp out there and remember those two verses. Go back and read the first two chapters of Ephesians. It is the most energizing passage of Scripture probably in the New Testament regarding the church and what God's done for us. And it talks about the joy and, and the energy that it should give us knowing that Christ has, has adopted us. And the fact that we are already seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Those are spiritual things that I can't even comprehend, but they're true because he says it. We're already seated in the heavenly realms. To God, we have to go through history in our life. To God, it's already happened. We're already there. We're sealed and secure if you know Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is our deposit. And from that, we should get great joy and great boldness. And you know, the other scripture says, don't fear man. All he can do is take your life. Fear the one who can take your soul. We don't have to fear that when we know Christ Jesus. We can walk in boldness, not fearing the world. Don't worry about getting your feelings hurt. It's not about your feelings. It's about Christ and his sacrifice. Weep for the one who don't know him. And if they lash back at you and hurt your feelings, big deal. It's their defense mechanism because you have brought conviction into their life. Keep loving them. Ephesians 1 and 2, read it tonight from the standpoint of the joy that God has given us by adopting us through Christ Jesus. It's an incredible passage of scripture and you'll be greatly, greatly blessed. So in light of that passage, think about church folks you know. When, when you think about, and most of you are familiar with Ephesians 1 and 2 for the most part, think about the people you know. Are they living in that more? Are they completely appropriating what they know to be true spiritually according to the truth of word, God's word and the power that we have in Christ Jesus? Do you, the church folks you know, sitting to your left and right, are they living that way? Is that apparent in their life? Is it obvious to everyone who comes in contact with them? I don't know. Are they living in abundance that Christ died for? Now let's make it personal. 
Well, let's stay on the other person first. Do they exhibit the fruits of the Spirit? Does that look like, does that explain the life of the church folks, you know? Or is it sad sack, somebody licked all the red off my sucker kind of Christianity? Is it the Peanuts character with the cloud over his head or the Snuffy Smith with the, the character with the cloud always falling around the storm going on? That's a lot of the Christians that I've known in my life. It's always woe is me. There's no joy in their life. They're always sad or downtrodden or, or discouraged. That's not what Christ died for. Does that sound like an abundant life to you? It's not. I mean, I challenge you. Think about the Christians you know and how many of them exhibit the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Not that that occasionally pops out when they're feeling good or, or they're happy about something, but how many people do you know that that defines who they are? When you think about them, you think love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. How many people does that define their life? When the Holy Spirit indwells us, that is the fruit of him. Not what we well up within ourselves and try to be happy about. That should exude from us and spill out everywhere we are because of him in us. Then make it personal. Think about yourself. Are you living in abundance? Are you living in the more of life? Are you fully appropriating the power in Christ Jesus that's bought for you by his sacrifice? Are you walking in that boldness? Is your life experiencing and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? Does that define you when people think about you? When people think about you, do they, do they want to encounter you at church when they get here? Do they look for you when they get here? Or do they duck into the bathroom when they see you coming by? This should be who we are because of Christ Jesus. Not because life is wonderful in a rose garden, but because we have Christ in us. And we can walk in confidence and boldness and joy. I mean, James says, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because those trials are meant to refine your character and grow you and mature you into Christ's likeness. If we will persevere. Consider it all joy. I'm having a bad week and I just feel like I'm being attacked. Joy. You know, my, my kids are they're just driving me nuts. They've gone south. Joy. How are you going to respond? How are you going to react? How are you going to, to live out Christ in the midst of the trials so that you mature and you grow and that Christ is seen in you to the point where it's going to turn them around? That's the abundance. That's the more. Here's where all this is leading. This is the leading question. If our churches, if what our churches are producing are not people who are living an abundant life exhibited by the fruit of the Spirit, what's the problem? And I'm not talking about just Wallace, but certainly that's included in the question. I'm talking about churches in general of all denominations. If you walk in and, and the first thing you think is not, this is a joyful blood-bought, born-again bunch of people that are thrilled out of their gourd for their salvation and they're ready to tell anybody at the drop of a hat what Christ did for them. If that's not the atmosphere and environment in the church, you have to ask, what's the problem? 
The gospel we preach determines the disciples we produce. If what we have in this church or whatever church is a result of the gospel we preach, and it is, then we have to examine our gospel because Christ's gospel from Genesis to Revelation produces fruit of the Spirit. It produces great commission, great commandment, blood-bought, born-again, charge hell with a water pistol, Christians who will brave anything and everything for the sake of the gospel and who consider everything rubbish compared to the glory that we're about to experience when we go to be with Christ in heaven. So we have to examine our gospel. So let's get clear on what the gospel is. It begs the question, what gospel are we believing? What gospel are we believing? Here's six prevalent gospels that are being taught out there in the world today. And all of them are very prevalent. Turn on the TV any night, go to any city in any given church and you'll experience at least one of these six kinds and there's probably more. The first one is the forgiveness only gospel. Be forgiven. Fire insurance, Baptist gospel. Come down front, pray a prayer, shake a preacher's hand, get dunked, get busy, have a good life. Gospel. What's it create? Following Christ is optional. Discipleship becomes optional. And it, it produces, get this term, sanctified passivity. It gives us license to be spiritually lazy because we got what we were looking for, forgiveness from the penalty of our sin with no obligation to move any further in a relationship or action in life with Christ Jesus. Got my fire insurance. How many people have you talked to and shared your witness with? Say, oh yeah, I prayed that prayer when I was 10. They lived a life of a hellion for the last 40 years, but they're trusting a 10-year-old church experience for salvation. Show me that in the Bible. It's not true. Forgiveness-only gospel is an incomplete gospel that leaves the majority of people with a false assurance of heaven thinking they're okay. And the only thing worse than being lost and knowing it is being lost and thinking you're saved. Because you get to the end and you walk into Matthew 7 and Jesus said, who are you? I don't know you. You came in on the wrong gate, the wrong road. But we prophesied in your name. We, we, we cast out demons in your name. We preached in your name. We've done good works in your name. Jesus said, I don't know you. And then the fatal words, away from me, you workers of iniquity. Forgiveness only gospel produces sanctified passivity. It can't be. Then you have the left gospel, both an old left gospel and a new gospel. Help the needy. This is the social gospel. Help the needy. What does it create? It, it creates accommodation to culture. It, it, it tells them that true truth is optional or there's moral relativism. Well, truth is relative to your circumstance and your situation. No, it's not. But that's what this old and new left gospel, social gospel creates. And you can't really know whether you're saved. We hope so. We did everything the church told us to in order to be saved. But boy, I'm just hoping when it gets to the end, God lets me in. 
Oh, my goodness. There is zero joy found in that salvation because it is no salvation. Salvation without assurance, there's no joy in that. And that's what the old and the new left gospel creates. Then you have the prosperity gospel. Most of us don't believe in that, but two-thirds of the world gets it constantly. And the places where it's most pervasive is the poorest, most poverty-stricken places in the world because they feed them this hope of coming out of their poverty. So they feed them hope. You, you sow seeds into our ministry and you'll get this exponential return in yours. And it's just not true. So you can claim your rights. What does it create? It creates, creates an entitlement attitude and it creates God managers. I'll do this for you, God, if you do this for me. We manage and barter with God in the prosperity gospel. It's a false gospel. There's no hope in it. There's certainly no joy. Then you have the consumer gospel. That one is the gospel that meets your needs, makes you feel good about what you do. I call it long-arm Christians. You just grow longer and longer arms, pat yourself on the back by the, by the good works you do. Meets your need. What's it create? Self-indulgent impatience and addiction to your own desires. false gospel the right gospel boy this one was the prevailing gospel for many years during the more majority times of jerry falwell and i loved jerry falwell but there were a lot of of problems with that whole mindset the right gospel says be right what does it create theological swagger you think you're right and everybody else is wrong and you puff your chest out because of it and you point judgmental fingers toward those who don't believe the way you do I'm not saying there's room for more truth than what the truth is, but I'm saying that if we ever think that we understand it more and better than anybody else, then we've become a theological bigot bigot in a lot of ways. And we have to leave room to, to walk hand in hand with people we don't always see eye to eye with theologically as long as we can agree on the basic tenets of, of the Scripture. It produces theological swagger and it produces exclusiveness and detachment it removes you from the rest of the world because you're better than them theologically you're right they're wrong so come and live in our camp if you leave our camp you're you're lost then you have the kingdom gospel follow me is its mantra what does it create activist christianity christians who are involved in the world in order to win the world it creates followers intent on learning to live as jesus lived a kingdom gospel creates people who live their life as though jesus was living it that's the gospel we want to be about the kingdom gospel there's there's mixtures of all these in just about every church but you really have to examine what you're preaching. It's important to arrive at a biblical definition of the gospel. It's not just important, it's imperative, it's critical. Because again, if we don't get this right, nothing else matters. So the question is, what is the gospel? It's the kingdom gospel. Scott McKnight in his book, The King Jesus Gospel, said, I believe the word gospel has been hijacked by what we believe about personal salvation and the gospel itself has been reshaped to facilitate making decisions the result of this hijacking is that the word gospel no longer means in our world what it originally meant to jesus or the gospels we've diluted it 
we've allowed it to become something it wasn't or exponentially less than it originally was let's let's look at what i'm talking about we all believe and we can all pretty much recite this elevator version of the gospel it comes out of first christians 15 as it's the best discussion of the gospel probably by paul in the new testament basically it can narrow it down to christ died he was buried he was resurrected and he's coming again one day but can we really say that's the gospel? Can we really bring people into a relationship with Christ that's going to change their life and turn the world upside down by just the elevator gospel? Or will it leave them short? There's more. There's more to the gospel than that. That's a good three or four talking points. But what that does is at best, if you do have a true conversion, it leaves people standing at the starting line waving the victory flag. And we, we can't do that. Christianity is the only thing, is the only organization in the world that does that. You're saved, celebrate, worthy of celebration, but it's the starting line. We have, by adopting an elevator gospel culture in our churches, allowed people to come to the starting line of the gospel thinking it's the finish line. And, and what Olympic athlete, we're in the middle of the Olympics right now, how many of them have you seen climb up and get their gold medal for walking to the starting line? You would think that was kind of weird. But we do it. That's the starting line. And I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. We're in the race. We're in the race. Coming to salvation is the starting line. Discipleship is the race. Winning the world to Christ is a race. That's what we're to be about. We can't spend so much time celebrating the starting line that we forget to teach them how to run the race and equip ourselves to run it as well the gospel delivers it delivers from the penalty of sin that's the first thing we're looking for lord i don't want to go to hell please save me from the penalty of my sin if if the if the wages of death is hell i don't want none of that so god save me from the penalty of my sin but we also have to understand that it delivers us. The gospel delivers us from the obligation to sin. Read Romans 8. It says we are now no longer under any obligation to sin. Doesn't mean we're going to be sinless and perfect. It just means we're not obligated to it, to it anymore. We have the power not to. Before the gospel and before the surrender to Christ, we had no power. We were slaves to it. Now we're slaves to Christ. We are under no obligation to sin. And the gospel also delivers us into the kingdom of God. We are already seated with him in the heavenly places. We are delivered there, sealed until the day of our redemption by the Holy Spirit. That's what the gospel delivers. But we don't really get through that. We try to, we try to treat salvation in Jesus as a commodity that we're selling by saying you don't want to go to hell do you now trust me that's a good reason to be saved but it's not all there is so we need to preach a complete gospel that tells them you're delivered from the penalty of sin you're delivered from the obligation to sin anymore you can live a life of liberty and power through christ jesus and you're delivered to the kingdom of god it's a done deal that's a whole lot better of an explanation of a complete gospel 
Francis Chan said this in Crazy Love, people don't want to be saved from their sin. They want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. That's so true. Boy, I got to go down front. I got to get this fire insurance thing done. I don't want to go to hell, but don't bother me with the rest of that equation. What do you mean I need to go to Sunday school? What do you mean I need to be discipled? What do you mean I need to share my faith? What do you mean that I got good works that you created in advance for me to do? I didn't sign up for that. I just wanted to not go to hell. You can't have conversion without discipleship. As I started, there's nothing in the New Testament that looks like that. There is no such thing as fire insurance. The only time when scripture talks about escaping as though through the fire is talking about the judgment seat of Christ when our rewards are being burned up and we escape as though through the fire because all of our rewards are burned up because they were done with rotten motives. That's not talking about escaping with your salvation as one coming through the fire. There's no fire insurance. There's only blood-bought, born-again, life-transforming Salvation. Mark Batterson, the study all in, we did it last summer. Jesus, he said, Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Chew on that for a minute. Jesus didn't die to make us safe. He died to make us dangerous to the lost world and to Satan and his army. He died that we would be empowered to change the world. He died that we would have the boldness and the strength and the tools it takes to literally bring a lost world into salvation. That's why he died. He didn't die to save us from hell. That's only one small iota of the benefit. He died to make you and I his army. We're plan A and there's no plan B. That should scare you and it should empower you. We are all he has and we are all he needs if we believe in the gospel and we understand that he died to make us dangerous. The gospel is the fulfillment of God's plan for his children Israel through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son Jesus. Part B, through adoption. You and I, he saves us from sin and calls us to follow Jesus into the kingdom of God, both in this life and the life to come. We cannot skip the kingdom now for the kingdom later. He saved us for the kingdom now. He saved us for this time in our history known as life. He saved us for the purpose of propagating the gospel where we live, work, and play. In our home place, workplace, and marketplace, where we live is where our gospel opportunities and responsibilities lie. Not here. This is the equipping station for the church. We live less than 2% of our life as Christians here. We live over 98% of our life as Christians there. How are we using it? How good of a steward are we with our 98% outside of our equipping station? Or are we sitting here soaking up message after message, Sunday school lesson after Sunday school lesson with ever, with never any expectation of actually responding to what we're hearing without any expectation of continuing to be a rescue station as the video showed this morning or are we just building our little sanctuary because we're safe and the world's drowning 
98% of our Christianity is outside of here. 2% to equip, 98% to propagate the gospel. That's the way God designed it. We can't skip now for later. We can live now in expectation of later, but now is what God saved you for and saved me for. It's imperative that we figure out our purpose. John 3.3 3 says, I assure you, unless someone's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again is not some religious right phrase. It is a Jesus term that says you are born of flesh and born of the spirit. And when he saves you, he changes you, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. If he has not changed you, he has not saved you. If you think you walked an aisle as a child or as an adolescent or as an adult or as a median adult or as a, or as a senior adult, if you think you walked an aisle and never had any heart change or life change and you're still claiming salvation, it's not true. If he saves you, he changes you. You can't remain the same old crotchety young person or old person you were before you met Christ and claim salvation. It's not true according to the scripture. Well, God knew who I was when he saved me. He knew my personality. Yeah, and he desires to sanctify it. He desires to sanctify that that personality he desires to sanctify your attitudes he desires to sanctify your relationships he desires to make you more like christ jesus every god moment to god moment as the scripture puts it he desires to make you look more like his son we are to be about that that's discipleship that's sanctification that's the preparation of our life for an eternal life that is the role of us in the kingdom now in anticipation of the kingdom not yet you have to be born again. And when you are, there's results. There's proof. George Whitfield, back during the days of the Great Awakening, used to preach and he would stand up and, and have hundreds and sometimes thousands respond to the gospel message. And somebody came up to him after one of his crusades where many, many people responded and they said, George, how many converts did you get tonight? He said, I don't know. I ought to know more in about six months. What was he saying? Proof's in the pudding. Life change, salvation evidence. Life stays static, fail. Still got gospel to do. We can't, we can't expect that somebody walks down and stands here and cries and makes a profession of faith and we say, welcome to the kingdom of God. Now we do because that's an encouragement. But our responsibility is their church family just began. We are now to walk with them step by step every day in the hardships of life, helping them to learn to grow and become more like Christ Jesus. We can't leave the baby on the doorstep. Our responsibility starts with them at the starting line. But we want to celebrate and say, Here's 23 Sunday school classes. Find one that fits you. Hope you have a good time. Got a lot of programs going on. Got many classes on Wednesday and Sunday night. Have fun. Hope you grow in the midst of that atmosphere somewhere. That's not discipleship. Putting your arm around somebody. Finding out who they are. Who God created and gifted them to be. 
inviting them into your home, out for coffee, finding out who they are and helping them solidify the decision they made and then get into the word with them in order to grow them in Christ Jesus so we see a life transformed, that's our responsibility. I've I've said it ever since I've been here and long before I got here, the purpose of Connect Group or Sunday School is never Bible study. That's not the purpose. That's a vehicle that's used. But the purpose of it and every other discipleship mechanism is life transformation. It's helping people become more like Christ day by day. Our goal personally and for those in our circle of influence should be to become more like Christ tomorrow than we were today and hopefully more like Christ today than we were yesterday. That's life transformation. That's our goal. That's our desire. That's what everything in this church should be designed to do in the equipping process. We're going to talk about that some more next week and talk about a discipleship flow plan. But most of what I talk about in these six weeks is going to be about answering the question, why? Not what or how, but why? We're, about, we're, in, a, we're in a key transitional time in this church. We have an, an unprecedented opportunity to affect change and to turn our church inside out to turn the world upside down if we miss this window it could be another 20 years 40 years 50 years before God gives us opportunity again if we're not obedient that's why we have to go back to the this is a football speech what's the gospel why is it important we understand it the way we do it's because we have an opportunity now as a church to become everything god needs us to become in order to win our community our jerusalem our judea our samaria and uttermost parts of the world for the kingdom of god now is the day but it means change you can't stay where you are and follow god You can't keep doing what you're doing and expect different results. That's the definition of insanity. We must do different things in order to achieve different results. We must turn our church inside out in order to turn the world upside down. It's going to take the commitment of I am a church member that Stephen talked about this morning. That was a concert of spiritual beauty this morning as we recited that response. But starting next week, we move from I am to I will. We built the car over the last four weeks. We're putting the rubber on the road in the next nine. Now is when we see where those commitments play out. Now we see how serious those voices were because now is when we have to step up and step out as the kingdom of God and as his church and I can't even begin to express how excited I am to be on the journey with you and what I feel God's doing the staff feels God's doing our leadership feels God's doing we all have an an expectation an anticipation of God doing miraculous things that we can't even begin to ask or imagine And if you don't have that, I pray God sets you, your heart on fire until you walk out. I hope you walk out of here tonight challenged, encouraged, scared to death, but on fire with the Holy Spirit. We fanning each other's flames to where the gospel becomes who we are everywhere we live. And we start seeing people sitting with people. I wonder who who they're sitting with today. Why do they have five people with them? They're usually just him, her, and them. 
Oh. They actually started loving people, sharing Christ with people, inviting them to church, invited them into their home. I was talking to Linda Cox. I don't know if Linda's here tonight, but I was talking to her yesterday. She's right here, and she's starting a Bible study in her home with some neighbors and friends. And some of them know Christ, some of them don't. The majority of them don't. Yay, Linda. That's what this life is about. We're going to talk about discipleship flow plan. It involves C groups, D groups, and E groups. She's already way ahead. She's in an E group. It's an evangelism, community-based group, loving on your neighbors, inviting them in your home, giving them a, a cupcake and a cup of coffee, and speaking into their lives and sharing Christ with them. You know, it's amazing what people will do when you ask them. I shared a couple of weeks ago what Ed Stetzer, one of the Ed Stetzer quotes of the Southern Baptist Convention. He said, people are willing for you to invite them to your church if they think you're sincere and they see it has changed your life. They're also open for you sharing what your beliefs are if they feel you're sincere in them and hold them closely. And then he said this, and I shared it, but I want, it's worth repeating. We are a country of open hearts and a church of closed mouths. Major conviction. Do we love people enough to even ask them into our home, have a cup of coffee, have a cupcake? Can I tell you about my Jesus? That's an e-group. That's outreach from the inside, from the outside in. Discipleship is growth from the inside out. Evangelism is growth from the outside in. We need to be about both of them. Discipleship is essential because we'll never get to the outside in part unless we're growing from the inside out. So looking at those gospels and how we discussed them, which, ask yourself this question, which gospel does our church teach? My honest opinion is it's a mixture of a couple. Consumer gospel is definitely an element. I come to have my needs met. I come to have my preferences tickled. I hope they sing like I want to sing. I hope it's warm when I get there, cool when I get there. I hope they have good coffee this morning. I'm going to sit in the balcony so I can at least say I'm there, but I'm going to disconnect. And, and I'm not saying everybody, don't get mad at me. I'm not saying everybody who sits in the balcony thinks that way. Kind of. But I would beg you, if you're a balcony dweller, when we have a 1,700-seat auditorium with six and 700 people in it on Sunday morning, if you all will come out of the balcony and come down here and join the family on the floor, it will absolutely transform the atmosphere of worship in this room. I promise you. I can't force you to. I'm not going to tape the seats shut. I'm not going to take the backs off. But I beg you, try it next Sunday. Walk on down. Let's fill up the floor and see how it transforms the atmosphere. The choir, the orchestra, the praise team, they will feel a whole new energy. You will meet a whole new family and the energy will be incredible. We need to be willing to make some small movements. Out of some of you, that's a major thing. I just, you know, I just spoke heresy. Stop it. Stop it. Just because we have those seats up there don't mean that it's conducive to the worship atmosphere and glory to God by everybody spreading out and sitting in them. 
I've suggested, and I think we may do it not too distant future, we're going to put a camera in the choir loft. And at some point during the service, we're going to let you see what they see. It looks like BB's in a boxcar down here. There's so many different zip codes. You've got a seat for your pocketbook, your umbrella, your Bible, your, your chewing gum, your wife, your dog. You've got the whole world down here. And you don't have to interact with anybody. Stop it. Let's be a family. Let's, let's foster an atmosphere of worship by coming together in a close-knit community of believers that want to sit next to each other and see what God does. You know, if, 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 if some little lady's sitting right here on Sunday morning by herself and she starts weeping and there's nobody within shouting distance, who's going to touch her? Who's going to wipe her tears? Who's going to pray for her? Because we're afraid to get close to anybody. And let me just, while I'm being crazy, when you get down here, move to the middle. Don't make somebody bring their pole vault to get over you to get to the, you know what I'm talking about? You walk down and there's 23 seats right here. I'm not picking on you, brother, but Rick's sitting right here on the end and, and somebody comes down and looks at him and he goes, like, what? And makes them climb over or go around or, you know, pinch him or something. Come down and let's be a family. Move to the middle. Make room for, for the visitors who are uncomfortable with the situation. We're church folks here. We should be comfortable with each other. Snuggle up and make some room for the visitors. And then you know who they are because they don't get lost in the mix. And there's so many simple things we can do to be a family and to reach out to unchurched people. And, and I'm going to go where uh, no man has ever gone before. I'm going to talk about the handshaking thing in just a second. <laughs> but eternity is too long to be wrong. Listen, we've got to nail this gospel thing. The gospel is not three points in a poem on an elevator. It is not Jesus died and was resurrected. It is the gospel from Genesis to Revelation, it is the fullness of Christ's life in the New Testament. It is living your life as Jesus lived it in its fullness. I just went through an exercise with a group I'm studying with in, in the, the conversion and discipleship book, and I read the gospel. My assignment was to read the gospel of Matthew with the filter on of how did Jesus do it. We all took a different gospel. I read Matthew and had to write a paper on how did Jesus make disciples. What environment did he use? Did he do it intentionally? Did he walk with them? Did he, how did he do it? Try it sometime. It is eye-opening. And we need to walk as Jesus walked. That's discipleship. We're not a disciple of Jeff Archer or Daryl Wright or Mike Boyd or anybody else. We're a disciple of Jesus Christ. We should be examining how he made disciples. He invested in their life. He walked with them. He cried with them. He laughed with them. He ate with them he got into their life he went to where the lost people were does that look like our discipleship the gospel is the fullness of the life of Christ as revealed in the word of God from start to finish it's not three points 
It is who was Jesus Christ when he walked on this earth because he was the incarnational God. So every step he took, we should lockstep in. We should look for a Jesus footprint and step in it. That's the gospel. The gospel is not praying a prayer, although that's involved in it. The gospel is not coming down and recording your decision, although that's part of the church process. The gospel is converted to be sanctified so there's life transformation so that Jesus becomes in your life to transform the life of another. And by the way, if it's not replicating itself, if you're not making other disciples, you're not a disciple. Everything in the New Testament that Jesus did, he taught and Paul expounded on was replicational. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul was talking to young Timothy. He was discipling him and he said, young Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have seen me do in the presence of many witnesses, you teach others also. And so they can teach it to faithful men who will also teach it. There's five generations of discipleship in that one Actually, two verses, 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. That's discipleship. If it's not created to replicate itself, it's not discipleship. We should be making disciples who make disciples. We should be starting classes that start classes. We should be planting churches that plant churches. Everything we do should begin with the send in mind. Everything we create should be meant to send ourselves outward into the community new churches, new classes, new relationships, new surrenders and commitments to mission world. Everything we do, we're gonna talk about that a lot in the next few weeks. The gospel is imperative. It is more than a plan of salvation. That is the first part, but it includes a plan of salvation that saves you for good works and saves you to make disciples who make disciples. Discipleship lived out through the Great Commission, how in the world can you define it by a plan of salvation? It never gets to go to the world. It gets you saved and leaves you there to have a happy time in the church with other folks like you who are also not committed to the Great Commission. Salvation and discipleship drives you to the Great Commission to make disciples and to go into all the world. And to turn it upside down. Clarity of the gospel. It's more than a plan of salvation. It is that, but it's more than that. A call to salvation is a call to discipleship. No excuses. No options. That's the gospel. That's where we need to have an expectation. We need to know what the gospel is. We need to know that we surrendered to a kingdom gospel. We need to know that we're committed to a kingdom gospel. We need to know that we are being transformed by a kingdom gospel. You don't have to create all kinds of great metrics to know that. It's the fruit of the spirit. It's Jesus oozing out of you from every pore everywhere you go. We have a lot of work to do. But boy, I'm stinking excited to get started. And I hope you are too. We'll pray in just a minute, but I want to talk about the handshakey thing. 
we we discussed as a staff after reading a lot of research and opinion and it all really comes down to this if i step out off the plank somebody save me (laughs) it goes back to this discussion about being an outwardly focused christian an outwardly focused church a church that's concerned about those who aren't here yet a church that's going to be selfless rather than selfish and all the research that has been done in the current world we live in, not just millennials, this transcends age. This is everybody who's unchurched. When they do finally accept an invitation to come into church, and if they've had any, any uh, experience with, with small church life in their past, they all fear one thing that you're going to ask them to stand up and shake hands with people they don't know in an environment that they're unsure of and scared to death what you're going to ask them to do. And in days past, you used to make them put on a stick-on banner that said, I'm a visitor. <laughs> we don't do that anymore, thank goodness. But I'm telling you, the, the, the culture is so afraid and uncomfortable with that kind of things in the church any old excuse will do and listen we know that we're family we know we love each other we have all kinds of opportunities to shake hands and hug and take out for coffee and and have you over for dessert we've got 98 percent of our life our christian life to fellowship with one another but on sunday morning when we are trying to get people to come and hear the gospel we don't want any barriers or any hurdles And if that makes them uncomfortable, then please shake my hand in the hallway. We can still love on each other. We can still high five. We can hug. We can shake hands. We can have each other over for dinner. We can fellowship all we want to 98% of the time. But if we get unchurched people in here who are uncomfortable with our language and our traditions, we can't give them an excuse not to come or not to come back. That's the thought process behind that really, my opinion, my mind, small adjustment. But it was an earthquake. And, and Rainer followed up his book, I Will, with Who Moved My Pulpit. That's the name of his third book in the series. When we made that change, it was that same analogy. You would have thought somebody had moved my pulpit. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to make anybody feel bad if, if that bothered them. I understand it. We're people and we like what we do. Like Dale said before, we like what we do and we don't understand why other people don't like it. We need to start understanding. We need to start giving up our wants and desires and preferences and preference to those who don't know Christ who we finally get to come in here. We want them to be comfortable enough to come in and I'll tell you what, unchurched people, they'll come down and sit on the front row. They don't know they're not supposed to. <laughs> they'll ask questions. They don't know that's not all right. We need to make them comfortable and let them hear the gospel and call them to a decision and then shake their hand for the rest of their life. Walk hand in hand with them down a path of discipleship to love Christ and then bring others the best evangelists are the ones who just got saved because they're 
in love with Christ and thrilled to death because they've just been rescued from their sin. And they want their friends to know that. Let's not let seemingly things, big things like that, get in the way of reaching those who aren't here yet. If I have to give up 90 seconds of handshaking time so that an unchurched person is comfortable coming in and allowing them to hear a message like Stephen delivered this morning, oh my gosh, I'll take that. That trumps everything. I encourage you, come early, stay late, love each other. There's a coffee shop right there with free coffee. Sit down and and handshake all day long, love on each other. Invite people over for dinner, be a family. But let's be mindful of the unchurched. Let's be mindful of the people who aren't here and be sensitive to their comfort level. Goes back to the whatever it takes attitude. What are we willing to give up in our traditions and functions, language, practices? What are we willing to give up in order to reach one more person for Christ? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. To be quite honest, if you would observe handshaking time, the vast majority of us shake the same hand every week because we hadn't seen our best friend in six days and we look for them in church. I'll give you a little suggestion. Call them. Buy them a crystal. Have them over for coffee. Get here early. Have a cup of coffee on us in the coffee shop. Shake their hand. Love on them. Sit with them. Sit close to them in the middle. (laughs) Have them invite their friends who don't know Christ to come in. Put your arm around them when they come. Shake their hand the whole time you're sitting there. But don't make an unchurched person uncomfortable. And we can, we, can, we can dispute that all day long. But I'm telling you, the Rainer Research Group and others all say the same thing. You got to take away the uncomfortable moments. And it's not uncomfortable for us because we, we's family. I get that. But for that hour, let's really focus on the people who don't know Christ. Is that Okay. Listen, our, we've got we've to turn outside, inside out, to turn the world upside down. We've got to love people more than ourselves. We've got to share Christ with those who desperately need him. And we've got to give up any of our little things that we need to for the sake of their eternity. Every time I have a friend who had no fruit of Christ in their life pass away tragically, just breaks my heart not because somebody didn't tell him because I didn't I want my church to be one that they're willing to come into even though they might not look anything like us matter of fact if if, if I think if we're obedient and God throws up and open the conduit of his love and starts bringing people into this church we ought to be 
conditioned with the heart of the Holy Spirit that looks for the strangest person coming through the door and we put our arm around them and make sure they're welcome and you escort them to the coffee shop, you get them a cup of coffee, you get them some mints, you bring them in here and sit with them, you take them out to dinner. Don't just look for people that look like you. Look for those who don't look anything like you and watch the love of Christ just overwhelm them. Because when they come in looking not like us, they expect judgment. They expect you not to want to have anything to do with them. And here's something else I've just to add licorice icing to the cake. And I didn't say that in a positive way because I don't like licorice. I have witnessed people walking by a visitor to shake the hands of a friend and the visitor looking down because they've just been rejected by someone who walked their way and made eye contact and walked past them. That breaks the heart of God. That's the handshaky thing. There's the cross. You can crucify me if you want to. But we're just trying to be sensitive to the needs of a lost world who desperately need the message that we have. And if they honor us with their presence in this room, let's go out of our way to make it comfortable for them for the sake of the gospel. Never compromising the message. Never. Our message needs to stay as conservative as it's ever been and more so. But our methods need to be so liberal, we'll do whatever it takes. We'll become all things to all men that we might save some. I'll apologize for the lack of communication concerning the decision. But when are you going to ask that? When are you going to bring that up? When are you going to say we're thinking about doing this? It's just difficult. Sometimes we have to make decisions for the sake of the body and for the sake of the unchurched because we see the damage that it's doing. And so we just we just ask for your grace and your patience. We're never we're never we're never averse to the question or the discussion. Please understand that. If something bothers you that we've done, please talk to us, not about us. Let's be Christian about it and biblical. Come and have a discussion. I'm not afraid of that. Nobody on our staff is. Nobody on our deacon leadership is. We're open to the discussion. And if we have to disagree, we'll walk hand in hand, even though we don't see eye to eye on those things. But we have to agree on a clarity of the gospel for the sake of the kingdom and for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, I pray that in the days to come, we become a gospel-centered, on-fire, inside-out church that you can use to turn the world upside down. God, I pray that we see things happen in this church that can only be explained by you and that we are scared to death to step out in the aisle because we get in the way. God, help us to examine our hearts. Help us to be brave enough and honest enough to ask you to examine our hearts, to show us any wicked things within us. Help us to have an attitude of forgiveness, mercy, grace, and above all, love.
Help us to know Christ in his fullness and live as though he is living through us and in us because he is if we know him as our savior. Help us to grasp the complete gospel of conversion, discipleship, life transformation, reproduction so that the world may know that there is a God. His name is Jesus. He died for them. He loves them. And he's coming for them. Help us to be the church in this community, in this city, in this state, in this country, in this world. Help us to be the church that changes the world. Help me. Help me to be the man you call me to be. To put aside all of my preferences. All of my rotten thinking. All of my obstinates. God, put it to death. Help me to be a man of God. That can show others the way. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Shake hands all you want to.